Please be seated. My name is Kate Johnson and I serve as the chaplain to Queen's University. And my first order of business today is to welcome Mayingen Deb St. Emma and Taliet Dunhas Nathan Brinklow to the stage for the opening dedication. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Nathan Brinklow. I am Mohawk from the Tainanega Mohawk Territory, and I teach our language here at Queen's University. I would like to welcome you to these lands where my people and the Anishinaabe people and other indigenous peoples have lived for generations. I'm honored to share a few words with my friend and colleague as we welcome you today and begin this important event in the life of our shared community. <laughs> When I say hello, all my relations, I am not talking solely people. Everything in nature is my relative. I said my spirit name and that I am also known as Deb Montclair and Lours, Berclan, then I situated myself on the land. Um, that's important for indigenous people as we are the land. Iyu Namawe Nigan, Maba Asema, Minwa Ode Winan, Gida Bagadinimagan, we offer our prayers, tobacco, and our hearts. And today we send our greetings to the waters, which are so central to this community along Ganyat Darío, or Ontario, the beautiful lake. Merci pour les animaux and the animals that crawl and the animals in the water. Merci aussi pour, pour les plantes et les arbres. We give thanks to the plants and the trees. And we turn our attention to the skies and we acknowledge with thankfulness the winds, the rain, and the snow uh, for the work they all do in continuing to support our lives. We are all in this together. Kina go kina ogima Patrick Dean ahau. Sego, <coughs> Nyungkwa 
ahí, aquí, this is uh, we're offering this to you on um, re renewing you were given a two row not too long ago not about five years ago or three <laughs> three years ago and and so this is a reminder of, of that we will work together those words that were said is that that we're going to continue to work together to to build our relationship with each other and with the land and with the with everybody um, students and that that we might have a, a, a better understanding of each other as we walk together here on on, on this campus thank you oh. I hope so too thank you thank you I'm uh, honored now to introduce the um, ATEP women singers who will sing an honor song for convocation. The honor song is sung when we would like to especially honor an occasion or an individual. And so we're singing this honor song it, for both reasons, to honor both this occasion and the installation of Dr. Dean as principal, and also to honor the recognition of the honorary degrees that will be received today. If you're able, I would invite you to stand for the honor song. Thank you.
Please be seated. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Bonjour à tous et à toutes. My name is Jim Leach, and I have the honor of serving as the 14th Chancellor in the 178-year history of this great institution. I welcome you here today to Grant Hall, to beautiful Kingston. The sun came out. It didn't cooperate on the 401 for those of you who are driving down, but it's beautiful uh, here today. And it was great at the beginning of the ceremony. Usually there are a lot more uh, or younger people in the crowd, shall I say? But I congratulate. I was looking around, and most of you do know the words to God Save the Queen. Congratulations. Um, people sometimes ask what a chancellor does anyway. And my fast answer is that I have the privilege of presiding over all of the happy events. And there is nothing happier than an event where we have two um, honorary doctorate degrees to be awarded and also to install a new principal and, and complete the transition of leadership at the university. Before we get started, I'd like to introduce to my left is the university rector, Alex Da Silva. The rector is the third highest office in the land. Um, and is held by a student and represents students uh, so that the voice of our student body is heard at the highest levels of the university. I'd now like to um, uh, call upon the Queen's University Choral Ensemble, direct, directed by Daryl Bryan, who will now perform How Can I Keep From Singing by Robert Lowry.
I now call upon Dr. Don Raymond, Chair of the Board of Trustees of Queen's University to address convocation. Mr. Chancellor, <clears throat> on behalf of the Board of Trustees, it is my honor to present Dr. Dean to you so that he may make the Pledge of Office and be duly installed as the 21st Principal and Vice-Chancellor of Queen's University at Kingston. Dr. Dean will now make his Pledge of Office, then members of the Queen's community who represent students, staff, and faculty will conduct the ceremonial robing. I declare you, Patrick Dean, to be duly installed as Principal and Vice-Chancellor of Queen's University. Congratulations. I now, I now invite Dr. David uh, DiTomasi, faculty senator, Ms. Catherine Lemon, staff senator, Mr. Jeremy Moser, the Alumni Association representative, and Mr. David Nittendent, student senator, who represent the Queen's community to come forward and robe the principal. I would now like to call upon the Principal and Vice-Chancellor to address Convocation. Mr. Chancellor, colleagues, friends, 
students, family. About a year ago, I was in Spain to help celebrate the 800th anniversary of the University of Salamanca. It was a remarkable occasion, not just because of the age of the institution, but because of the exuberance with which the citizens of Salamanca poured out onto the streets to join in the festivities. In the academic procession which snaked through the narrow streets of the medieval city, I walked beside the university's rector, their principal, and was astonished to see and hear the special applause as he walked by, almost like a hockey hero. I was deeply moved by this. I expect you will be thinking cynically, however, that it was probably envy that I felt. After all, it's almost impossible to imagine a similar spectacle taking place in any North American university town. But it was the fierce pride of the community that impressed me. Their apparent belief that the fortunes of ordinary citizens were profoundly intertwined with the history and future of their university. That experience brought home to me the importance of these institutions to the specific communities in which they've grown up, as well as to the broader enterprise of social and political formation. In the case of Salamanca, of course, I was looking at the result of eight centuries of collaboration, cohabitation, and shared experience between that university and its community, something that cannot be contrived or easily replicated by younger institutions. At the same time, though, universities like ours have emerged from a very different history with a perhaps more self-conscious, deliberate, and theorized understanding of their relationship to society and to the state. Wilhelm von Humboldt, the German statesman and scholar credited with imagining and then realizing the modern research university, wrote in 1809 this, the essence of higher academic institutions is twofold. Internally, these institutions join objective knowledge with the process of forming the subject. Externally, they connect the endpoint of secondary education with the starting point of self-guided education through maturity. This has been generally understood to mean that the essence of what happens inside universities is the cultivation of individuals, the forming of the subject, to use his language, through learning and discovery, a process then that in turn prepares them each for a life characterized by continuing education through experience. Now in selling his ideas to Prussian King Friedrich Wilhelm III, Humboldt went one step further, arguing that another function of the university was to mediate the competing demands of the ceaseless and unencumbered pursuit of knowledge with the more practical interests of society as represented and organized by the state. Engaging in some rather transparent flattery, Humboldt praised the king for his previous investments in education, saying this, it is clear to see that in all of your royal majesty's new state institutions, a sensibility predominates in which these most important of all assets, 
universities also serve the highest purpose of any unification of states. So while one aspect of Humboldt's contribution to the development of research universities was the notion of Wissenschaft, of a life devoted to scholarly knowledge in and for its own sake, another was the idea that such institutions are important agents of social construction and transformation. When his conception of the university was transplanted to America, as it was by emissaries sent to Prussia by Thomas Jefferson and other educational leaders on this continent, that sense of social mission came along as well. In fact, it was also to some extent amplified because colleges in America were implicated to an even greater degree than those in Germany in the process of nation building. Perhaps the most obvious indication of this preoccupation in the United States was the creation of the land-grant universities under the Morrill Acts of 1862 and 1890, which created institutions specifically to bring benefit to their immediate communities. In several cases, existing institutions were given land-grant status, and these included some that today rank among the world's great research universities. And the most notable of these is Yale. Now, the point of this brief history is simple. While it is true, as Peter McGrath recently wrote, that universities that are not engaged with their communities in the 21st century will soon find themselves disengaged from any meaningful relevance to their citizenry, the assumption that universities will or must contribute to the public good goes back at least 200 years to the very beginnings of the modern research university of which we are a fine example. The story I've told furthermore provides an important context for the otherwise puzzling prominence accorded to universities in such fundamental documents as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, approved by the General Assembly of the United Nations in Paris in 1948. Article 26 of that document declares education to be a right asserts that education should be free and compulsory, at least in the elementary and fundamental stages, observes that higher education shall be equally accessible to all on the basis of merit, and then takes flight in this description of the mission of educational institutions like our own. Education, this is, this, this is directly from, from the declaration, education shall be directed to the full development of the human personality and to the strengthening of respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms. That education serves the full development of the human personality echoes Humboldt, of course, his words about the way in which the subject is formed through its encounter with objective knowledge. And of course, respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms points towards an ideal or at the very least, a desired polity. In our own time, and in this country, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has forcefully underlined the link that is possible, though not inevitable, between education and the achievement of social justice. In suggesting that the link is not inevitable, I have in mind Justice Murray Sinclair's often quoted assertion and when it comes to the residential schools crisis, 
This is the quote, education got us into this mess and education will get us out of it. That educational institutions have the power to change lives and affect society is beyond question. What is often and entirely open to question is the system of values they may serve in doing so. In the wake of the Truth and Reconciliation Report, educators everywhere in this country are called to redress the incalculable individual and societal damage done by an educational system founded on dehumanizing racist and colonialistic assumptions. The purpose of Article 26 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is to say unequivocally what a desirable system of values should be, to insist that the end of education is the fulfillment of human beings, both in their individual capacity and in their social or political alliances. This represents what is usually referred to as the human development paradigm for education, an optimistic approach very much in keeping with the mood of post-war reconstruction in the late 1940s, the period from which the Universal Declaration comes. Over the last several years, not only in our own province, but more broadly around the world, that paradigm has given way to another. In discussions about what is needed for a nation to develop, wrote Martha Nussbaum a, a decade ago, here's a quote from her, what is on everyone's lips is the need for an education that promotes national development seen as economic growth. The emphasis is mine. Along with this focus on economic growth as the principal index of our communal health has come a broad preoccupation with measurement in all aspects of life, in the field of education, no less than in commerce and industry. In education, we've moved rapidly and with a surprising lack of concern from productivity metrics, graduation rates, employment rates, citation count, publication rates, number of awards, and so on, taken as proxies for human formation and development to the treatment of such metrics as ends in and for themselves. Consequently, it nowadays seems rather quaint to speak, as the Universal Declaration did, about education as the full development of the human personality. The annoying motto of our time is only what gets measured gets done, or some variant of that, which is demonstrably untrue. Human beings will develop by being joined to objective knowledge, whether we measure them or not. And a good, just society will always be more than the sum of its metrics. Nevertheless, in the sway of a culture that regards economic growth as the sine qua non of all human achievement and happiness, even educators have gravitated away from the human development paradigm, finding it alien, awkward, perhaps even slightly sentimental. What is the context in which we must think about education today? We find ourselves, I want to say suddenly, but this hasn't come upon us without warning, living in an age in which we cannot take for granted that inherited value systems will prevail, 
that either the laws of economics or the tenets of religious faith will deliver us into a state of equity, justice, peace, and prosperity. Speaking to an international audience, I recently recalled some comments by Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations. It's a long and depressing quote, but I will read it to you. This is a time, he has observed, of multiplying conflicts, advancing climate change, deepening inequality, and rising tensions over trade. It is a period when people are moving across borders in unprecedented numbers in search of safety or opportunity. We are still wrestling with the risk of the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and only beginning to reckon with the potential dangers of new technologies. There is anxiety, uncertainty, and unpredictability across the world. Trust is on the decline within and among nations. People are losing faith in political establishments, national and global. Key assumptions have been upended, key endeavors undermined, and key institutions undercut. That's the end of the quote. Universities are amongst those undercut in what has been called our post-truth age, as indeed is the entire educational ecosystem, premised as it is or ought to be on the idea that humanity seeks power over its destiny through the pursuit of knowledge and the quest for truth. I don't know whether our movement away from the human development paradigm for education is a mere symptom or a cause of this. And I certainly do not wish to suggest that the recent dominance of an economic growth paradigm is to blame. But I do believe that a connection exists between the disempowerment of educators in the process of social formation and our acquiescence in a philosophy that subordinates human aspiration to economic rules and imperatives. We need, because of the challenges facing our world, to return to the human development paradigm, to reassert in the teeth of all contrary arguments and complicating philosophies that the primary mission of the university is human fulfillment the development of people in and for themselves, in their relationships with others, and in their relationship with the planet that must sustain them. Such an approach does imply a politics, to be sure, and that is captured admirably in what the Universal Declaration says about the relationship between education and the strengthening of respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms. It points through the smokescreen of contingent circumstances to a social and political dispensation, which Dr. Borrows, one of today's honorary degree recipients, captures in a phrase which echoes wonderfully throughout his writings on indigenous constitutionalism. Culture, institutions, ideas, and traditions, all of that which, in other words, education serves to transmit from one individual or generation to another, he says, must, this is the quote, facilitate freedom by encouraging people to live a good life. Martha Nussbaum argues that education following the old human development paradigm is, quote, committed to democracy, since having a voice in the choice of policies that govern one's life is a key ingredient of life worthy of human dignity. 
The sort of democracy it favors will, however, be one with a strong role for fundamental rights that cannot be taken away from people by majority whim. It will thus favor strong protections for political liberty, the freedoms of speech, association, and religious exercise, and fundamental entitlements in yet other areas, such as education and health. She observes further that, quote, the human development model is not pie-in-the-sky idealism. It is closely related to the constitutional commitments, not always completely fulfilled, of many, if not most, of the world's democratic nations. I'm reminded of Dr. Borrows' observation that, quote, the pursuit of a good life is a politically messy process and not just an idealized end goal. In encouraging us to return to a human development paradigm founded on freedom and a good life, I do not wish to construct a false opposition between the human and economic goals of the educational process. One of the more positive characteristics of the current world order, as I described it earlier on, is that long-standing boundaries between the various dimensions of human experience are becoming much more porous. And for institutions like ours to fulfill their Humboldtian responsibility to society, they will need to take a comprehensive rather than an exclusive view of the human enterprise. While we need to have our gaze firmly fixed on the vision of society we wish to realize, we must acknowledge, understand, and integrate its messy intersections with all the various manifestations of human commerce broadly understood. In that, we are again very close to the historical purpose of universities, a bringing together of diverse perspectives and disciplines for illumination of individuals and for the greater good. I have spent over four decades as a beneficiary of this vision, three of them as its servant. To have the opportunity now to serve Queen's University as your principal is a particular honor. Notwithstanding the challenges of our time, indeed because of them, because of the post-truth ethos and spreading skepticism about expertise and knowledge, I relish the work that lies ahead. And in committing myself to you and the mission of this great Canadian institution, I commit myself again to a world where power consorts not with ignorance and arrogance, but with wisdom, creativity, modesty, and optimism. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Principal Dean. We're now going to be entertained by a special arrangement of the oil thigh. It was written in 2015 for the 175th anniversary of Queens, and at that time dedicated to Dr. Daniel Wolfe. I'd like to call upon the Queen's Symphony Orchestra and the Queen's Choral Ensemble to perform.
Now I ask Dr. Cynthia Fekin to come forward to introduce representatives from other universities and colleges who are with us today. Mr. Paul Davidson, President, Universities Canada. Dr. Harry Cowell, Principal, Royal Military College of Canada. Brigadier General Sebastian Bouchard, Commandant and Vice-Chancellor, Royal Military College of Canada. Dr. John Pierce, Vice Provost of Teaching and Learning at Queen's University, representing the University of Western Ontario. Dr. Stephen Murphy, President and Vice-Chancellor, Ontario Tech University. <clears throat> Ms. Jennifer Lorette, Executive Director, Development and Alumni Engagement, Smith School of Business, Queen's University, and Alumni Association Representative, University of King's College, Halifax. Dr. Guy Breton, Rector, L'Université de Montréal. Dr. Ram Murdy, professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at Queen's University, representing Carleton University President and Vice-Chancellor, Dr. Benoit Antoine Bacon. Mr. Benjamin Sewald, Office of Advancement at Queen's University, representing Laurier University. Dr. David Farrar, President, McMaster University. <laughs> Dr. Nadina Jameson, Assistant Vice President, Strategic Initiatives, Office of the President at the University of Toronto. Principal Dean would also like to thank all those representatives unable to attend who sent their warm greetings. Thank you. Principal Dean, will you present our first honorary graduate, please? Thank you, Mr. Chancellor. Mr. Chancellor, by the authority of the Senate, I have the pleasure to present to you that at your hands he may receive the degree of Doctor of Laws Honoris Causa, Daniel Robert Wolfe. Prominent academic, author, educator, and administrator. Proud graduate of Queen's and Oxford Universities. 
former principal and vice-chancellor of Queen's University. Recognized internationally as one of the preeminent authorities on early modern British historical thought and writing, whose body of published work has greatly influenced the pedagogy and research into that field of study. An early proponent of the need to consider understandings of the past in other civilizations in order to gain a more complete picture of historical events, whose prodigious scholarship is of such a caliber that it has influenced how a generation of British historians interpret their own nation's past. A skilled administrator who adeptly guided faculties at McMaster University and the University of Alberta before returning to Queen's to assume the duties of principal and vice-chancellor, who undertook the mantle of leadership of the university at a time marked by great political, economic, and social change, and who, despite great fiscal uncertainty, envisioned a future for Queen's that was sustainable without compromising academic excellence, rigorous research, or inclusivity, a truly balanced academy leading fundamental change to the governance structure of the university, necessary to ensure a bright and ever-relevant future for the institution, and through whose incisive direction the university has seen significant expansion of services to enhance student wellness, including programs to address mental health challenges head-on, the construction of new and improved facilities to foster an environment of creativity and innovation, and growth in the enrollment of international students a thoughtful facilitator who has championed ardently the need for reconciliation with indigenous peoples, both within the Queen's community and in the broader society, and through whose example the university has undertaken tangible steps along this path with the Principal's Implementation Committee on Racism, Diversity and Inclusion, setting a progressive and positive direction for the university for many years to come, and who, despite the rigors of his duties, was able to produce meaningful scholarship through numerous essays, articles, and edited books, and contributes to the greater promotion and understanding of our shared past through his work as a board member of the Historica Canada Foundation. Recognized by his peers with his appointment as chair of the Council of Ontario Universities, named a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, the Royal Historical Society, and the Society of Antiquaries of London, and recipient of the John Ben Snow Prize for the Social Circulation of the Past, English Historical Culture, 1500 to 1730, awarded for the best book by a North American scholar of British studies. A remarkable leader, exceptional scholar, and a proud son of Queens who has given much to his alma mater, whom we are most proud to pay tribute to with this, our highest award. In the name of this university and by authority of royal charter, I admit Daniel Wolf to this degree with all of its rights, privileges, and responsibilities. Congratulations, Daniel. <laughs>
acknowledged internationally as a foundational scholar in the field of indigenous law, who has enthusiastically shared his insightful scholarship with the next generation of lawyers in Canada, in Australia, and New Zealand, as well as the United States. A gifted interlocutor whose work challenges orthodoxy and dispels the myth of the absence of indigenous law by carefully curating a prodigious cultural and historical legacy of indigenous peoples as a means of uncovering the underlying legal principles for today and beyond, and whose efforts point the way to making the concept of reconciliation tangible in our understanding and interpretation of justice. Prodigious author, whose numerous books and articles form the bedrock of modern indigenous jurisprudence, its codification, interpretation, and most importantly, its acknowledgement, and whose research on the implementation of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples on behalf of the Center for International Governance Innovation gives a critically important measure of progress made and the work that remains to be done. Whose prescient insights and extensive knowledge helped shape the recommendations of both the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada and the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. And who helped to establish a joint degree program in Canadian common law and indigenous legal orders at the University of Victoria, a first of its kind. A transformative figure in the legal profession, whose legacy can be measured by the number of indigenous students under his mentorship who have gone on to work on First Nations self-government models, land policies, environmental impact assessments, land claims negotiations, and civil rights cases. Recognized as an Indigenous Peoples Council by the Indigenous Bar Association, recipient of the Killam Prize in Social Sciences, the Molson Prize from the Canada Council for the Arts, the Donald Smiley Award for the Best Book in Canadian Political Science, the Canadian Law and Society Best Book Award, and conferred with honorary doctorates from York University, Dalhousie University, the University of Toronto, and the Law Society of Ontario. An eminent voice in the evolution of our understanding of justice, whom we are delighted to welcome to Queen's, paying tribute to his accomplishments with this, a highest award. In the name of this university and by authority of royal charter, I admit John Jacob Boros to this degree with all of its rights, privileges, and responsibilities. Congratulations. Mr. Principal, I think you have the last word. What an unexpected pleasure. <laughs> University chaplain, give us a, a dedication. Sorry. <laughs> Who clearly forgot her glasses. That's true. Covenants have been made anew and renewed today. May all of us who have been party to them live out these promises so fully they are felt by all who encounter the Queen's community.
ideally without us ever needing to speak the words again. May all we meet know in their hearts that we are all treaty people and committed to the higher good. Thank you very much, Kate. And with that, our ceremony concludes. Many thanks to all who've worked to make today a remarkable, memorable occasion for me and for our community. I hope to see everyone at Banbury shortly where we will continue the festivities and have an occasion to say thanks in a less uh, formal setting. One final note, I ask that following the national anthem, you all remain standing for the recessional and wait for the procession to leave the hall. I will now ask you please to rise for the singing of O Canada.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 